Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we pray now that you will instruct our hearts through your holy word. Speak through me as your servant. Bless the reading and proclamation of your word to the hearts and minds of your people. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In the last Sunday of July, we worked through the beginning of Revelation 9, where the fifth angel blew his trumpet and a star fell from the heavens to the earth. This star was called Abaddon in the Hebrew and Apollyon in Greek. Uh, It is a fallen angel who was given a key of some kind to unlock or to unlock the opening of the great abyss. When this creature opened the abyss, smoke bellowed out of it like the smoke of a gigantic furnace, darkening the sky and the light of the sun. The darkening of the sky and the sun is an allusion to deception and the efforts applied to suppressing what is true and can be clearly understood by just looking at life and the dynamic processes of this earth. But to perpetuate this deception and the misery that accompanies it, out of the smoke comes a horde of demons who look and act much like locusts. One of John's sources in the Bible to help him explain what he sees in Revelation 9 comes from Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. In Joel chapter 2, the prophet describes the coming of the Lord's judgment in terms of an invasion of locusts. In verse 4, Joel describes these large devouring grasshoppers as war horses who gallop along like cavalry, bringing destruction and ruin to all that lies in front of them. Yet these demons are sent out to torment, not to destroy. We step up a level when we look at our current passage. When John uses the imagery of locusts, we need to remember that this is not the physical world we are talking about. This is the demonic world here in Revelation, and when we look at the text before us, Revelation 9, 13 through 21, we need to understand that demons know only the boundaries placed on them by God, not by man. The demons don't care how strong you think you are, how wise you think you are, how smart you think you are. They will stand against you in a heartbeat. They will come after you with all their fire and vigor and not hesitate to destroy your life. But they will not stand against God. So my point is, very bluntly, the demons in this world do not fear you or me. They fear Christ. Because he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And they know that they cannot stand against him. Not even all of them put together. They know they cannot stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. So remember that. Like locusts or war horses, they will not stop until either they are stopped by a greater power, I'm speaking of Christ, or they are satisfied. The king of the demons, the devil, is like a roaring lion, according to the apostle Peter. He is always on the lookout for the opportunity to destroy a person's life. 
Satan and the rest of the demons are like beasts. Wild beasts. Always seeking someone to devour. Always looking for their next meal. How do you resist such evil? Well, I've told you who the all-powerful one is. He is Christ Jesus. You resist them through the power of Christ. Let's look at our passage together. Revelation chapter 9, verses 13 through 21. The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. You remember that the martyrs were underneath that altar, beseeching God, wondering when, asking him when he was going to repay with vengeance on their behalf. So they were, I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. One thing that Hollywood does well, it's not showing good things, (laughs) is how they display evil. That's one thing Hollywood actually does well. They know how to display evil well. And sometimes I don't think we have a good picture in our minds of what the demons are like, what evil is really like. When I think of a movie like Lord of the Rings, where you see all these beastly creatures out there that are bent on one thing, and that is to destroy the world of men. That's their purpose. That's their goal, is to destroy the world of men. There was another movie a long time ago that featured the Great Wall of China. It was one of their legends that they had, why that big wall was built over 1,700 years and what it was meant to keep out. And this is more of a sci-fi type presentation where creatures from another place were bent on destroying the world. And these creatures look reptilian in nature. 
They look like a creature that would be five, six hundred pounds. Eyes on the shoulders and nothing but this massive crocodile-like mouth. They are powerful and swift and intelligent. They are guided by a queen who, who has this hive presentation. And they are bent on destruction. And they are not going to stop until they have destroyed every living creature on this planet. Like I said, Hollywood does a good job of revealing what evil is like. Sometimes I think we don't get it in our minds of, of what their purpose is. What, what evil really is like. Evil, evil wants to destroy your life. It wants to consume what you have, what God has given you, to take it from you in any way, shape, or fashion. That's what evil is bent on. Are we aware of that? When, when someone is, is struggling with sin, are we aware of what's going on, the battle that's going on in their hearts and minds? When, when we see somebody who is, is maybe overcome by drug abuse, do we understand the battle that's going on there? What, what these, this evil is trying to do to that person who's made in God's image? Do we understand or do we just stand by and let it happen? Will we intervene and fight on that person's behalf? Will we try and reach out to them and help them? Or will we just stand by and let it happen? I mean, when you watch lions devour their prey, it's, it's natural, right? What about lions devouring people in a coliseum? As the sixth trumpet sounds, an army that is every bit as supernatural and demonic as a locust plague is summoned to come forth. This army, however, is not sent simply to torment, but to destroy. Verse 16 says the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000, Times 10,000, you look at your NIV Bibles and they just spell it out to you. It's 200 million. 200 million soldiers. Not too many years ago, that number seemed larger than any conceivable army any nation could put forth. Not today. An alliance between China and Russia and India and other nations in that area could easily come up with a 200 million man army. The CIA, our own CIA, has estimated that there are 400 million men fit for service between the ages of 18 and 49 in China alone. But is that what the Apostle John is talking about here? There are two things we need to consider before we keep moving forward. One, we need to remember that Revelation is not only to the seven churches of Asia Minor, but to the church throughout the ages, throughout the gospel age. So when Christ died on the cross, said it is finished, his, his sacrificial work on earth was, was completed. From that point until he comes again is the gospel age. It is the age of the church. This revelation is not simply for the churches of Asia Minor in that particular time. Yes, it is for them. 
But it's also for the church up until this point and for us and for those who may come after us until Christ comes back. So the seven churches represent the church and its various types of problems and issues the church faces in this world. Revelation is not directed towards a world that is passing away. It is, it is directed towards us, God's people, and all who are being saved out of this world through the power and preaching of Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans eight nineteen through 21 the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God when all the elect are gathered in and finally revealed and not only we will receive new bodies, a new nature, the creation will also be restored to newness and no longer be under the power and influence of the curse in this world. But don't miss this, uh, this thought that this revelation is for the church in the world through the entire, throughout the entire church age. So the significance on our passage and on Revelation is that when you look at the parallels between the plagues revealed in the first four seals and the four trumpets and even the first four bowl judgments that are poured out, um, they direct us to interpret these events as happening during the days when the good news of the gospel is being proclaimed here in this world. Hence, you should understand that the woes even of the fifth and sixth trumpets here in Revelation 9 are active throughout the entire course of the church age. We also need to keep in mind the other source or one of the other sources that John is using uh, as, as illustrative material for Revelation, and that is the plagues of Egypt. That's in Exodus chapter 7, verses 14 following. Uh, Through Moses and Aaron, God laid plague after plague upon Pharaoh and the Egyptian people, with each plague being increasingly worse in its power to inflict misery on these people, on the nation of Egypt. One of those latter plagues was locusts. Yet every time God hit the Egyptians with a plague, Pharaoh would harden his heart against God and would not repent He would not turn the Israelites over. He would not set them free. And he would just simply stand his ground. And so the plagues continued until the tenth one finally got to him. Where not only Pharaoh lost his firstborn son, but everyone in Egypt lost their firstborn child. And they begged Pharaoh. They pleaded with him. Get these people out of here. Please let them go. Lest their God do something else to us. Or wipe us all off the face of the earth. And so finally he let them go. But did, did Pharaoh really repent here? Now you might be looking at this and saying, Okay, I see how some of the plagues track with, with what John is talking about in Revelation. But what about these horses with lion's head and tails that are like serpents? You know, and, 
and the writers who are similar to them. What, what about these horses? Where is that plague <laughs> in Exodus? Where are these horses riding after people seeking to destroy them? So, well, it's not necessarily one of the plagues, because that, that is a good question. If you turn your Bibles to Exodus 14, Exodus 14 shows that the Israelites are down in the valley. They're next to the Sea of Gal- or next to the Red Sea. And there's no place for them to go. They're trapped. And God lays it upon Pharaoh's heart that you're you going to let these people get away. In other words, God hardens his heart. Pharaoh doesn't just let him go. He gets all of his horsemen and his chariots. I want to tell you something. In that day and age, there was nothing scarier than a charioteer and the guy on the charioteer who had a, either a javelin or a bow coming at you at about 30, 40 miles an hour. You couldn't escape it. Once they were on top of you and those, those chariots had armor around them, once they were on top of you, they could mow down all kinds of people in their path just from the armor of the horse and the chariot itself. And so Pharaoh summons all of his charioteers. It says 600 of his best. So he's, he's taking everybody. The best of the best are going to go with him and then everybody else is going to follow behind. It's not just 600 chariots. It's all the chariots of Egypt, all the horsemen of Egypt, all the infantry of Egypt. They're all coming to take over Israel to defeat them and probably put them back into slavery if not put them to death. And so as you see Exodus 14 unfolding and the chariots are, are, are bearing down upon the Israelites, the Israelites, are they happy? <laughs> are they a little scared? They are terrified. They're terrified by what they see coming because they know that if God does not fight for them, if God does not preserve them and protect them, their doom is fixed. They are going to be overcome. They're going to be overtaken. And they have no place to go. But these two perspectives help us to understand something, to remember something. First of all, as God's people, we have His Word. His revelation is to us. It is the power of God unto salvation which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is God's power that he is working through his spirit in us that preserves us. You are not easily duped. You are not fooled because you have the counsel of God's word. And not only do you have the counsel of God's word, you have the power of God to preserve you against the deceptive power and intimidating forces of the evil one. That is the strength of God's saving grace, his salvation. How did did Israel overcome their foes? They're right there at the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army is right on the other side. If you read on in that passage, it talks about the pillar of cloud goes from in front of the Israelites to behind them. The angel of the Lord who was leading them goes from in front of the Israelites to behind them, sets up a barrier, a wall between them and and the Egyptians, so that neither could go towards the other. And then at one point, God says, why are the people crying out to me? And, and I almost have to read that in the, my vernacular of saying, why are these people whining? Have I not just sent ten plagues to rescue you, to deliver you from the hands of Pharaoh? 
Moses, stretch out your hand. Command the sea. Moses stretches out his hand and God brings an east wind and blows back the waters so that they walk through on dry land. God did this. That's why when we read Deuteronomy 5, I wanted you to see it was by God's power alone that delivered the people from Egypt, from their, from their taskmasters. They were slaves in a foreign land. God delivered them, and if God's power did not deliver them, they would not be free at all. That is the true for us as well. If it were not for God delivering us, we would not be free from the power of sin and the devil at all. We would still be dead in our trespasses and sins. We would still be guilty before God. We'd still be under the influence and direction of the evil one who rules this world. Secular world, I should say. How do you stand against the devil's cavalry? When we think about the evil that is before us, it is quite simply through the power of Christ. When you look at the armor Paul speaks of in Ephesians 6, those armaments represent God's power. They represent everything God has provided for you through Jesus, saving power to stand against the devil and his plans. The question is, will you use it? You think it's important? Absolutely necessary or partially necessary? How important is this armor to you? How important is the power of Christ to you? How important is his saving grace to you? These hounds of hell who go after people are no joke. The demons compared to locusts were sent to torment and not destroy. It is important to understand that demons drive people to do evil things. It's not quite as simple as the devil made me do it because we have a sinful nature in our heart. But the devil knows how to provoke and even drive that sinful nature into rebellion against God and those around you. The Christian has the power and counsel of Christ through the Holy Spirit to enable you to stand your ground against him. But woe to the one who does not have the power of Christ in your heart. Can you stand against the evil one? And evil in general? You'll be driven to carry out the desires of the devil and his demonic horde. That's why when Jesus does something in Scripture that's unique, I pay very careful attention. One of those unique times was in Mark 5. You can look at it in your Bibles if you want. Mark chapter 5, and it's in all the Gospels. Uh, A man who was possessed by a horde of demons ran out to meet Jesus, actually to confront Jesus. Jesus is commanding the demons within this man to come out of him. And it, it, it talks about repetition, that there's warfare going on here, that there's a fight going on here, that it's not simply Jesus says, go out of the man, and they say, yes, sir, we will, sir. No, there's a contest here. They're battling with all their might to stay in the man and not be cast out and sent into hell or to, to the abyss. And so when you look at verse 10, uh, When you look at verse 10, you see that 
they are begging Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. I find the word begging interesting when it comes to demons. They don't beg you <laughs> to stop doing something. Like I said, they're not, they're not afraid of you or me. But they're begging Christ. Why? Because they fear Him. They know who He is. They know He has the power to send them into the abyss. And they don't want to go there. They don't even want to leave the area. So verse 12 says, The demons begged Jesus. There it is again, the word begged. They begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. And verse 13 is what's curious. Jesus permitted these evil spirits to go into the pigs. Why would he do that? Well, pigs were considered unclean animals and the demons drove the pigs to their death. If you're a non-believer, if you don't have faith in Jesus Christ and in his power of salvation, and you're trying to just do things, wing it in your own strength, in your own power, number one, you are deceived and you don't even probably know it. The only way you'll have clarity and understanding and discernment is if God opened your eyes and opened your mind to who He is. Other than that, you won't even know you're being deceived. You know, if you, if you deal with a good con man who really knows his, his skill, his, his craft, he can deceive you and you don't even know you're being deceived because he's just that good at it. And it's only till after where you look at the transactions that take place that you realize you've been conned. That's when you find out after the consequences take place. As we look at Revelation 9, we need to consider that Jesus permitted these demons to go into those who were unclean. Why? To show two things. One, we don't have the power to stand against the devil in our own strength. And two, to show that the intent of the demonic horde is to drive people to destruction. Will demons ever tell someone that they need to stop abusing drugs? Would demons do that? Will the devil or his demons tell someone or tell you that you need to be content with what you have? Or if you continue to pursue riches in this world, if, if your love is for money, keep going. Don't worry about it being the root of all evil. Keep going until you've had your, foot, had your fill. And what is the problem? Well, you never have your fill. You never have enough. For a person who has $100,000, they want a million. For a person who has a million dollars, they want a hundred million. For a person who has a hundred million, they think a billion would be better. There's never enough, is there? You always have to go for more. And the point is, you should never be content. And they drive you to work harder and harder, forsake your relationship with your spouse, with your children, with your friends, in, in the pursuit of the almighty dollar, until eventually you're all alone and you die. Drive you, drive you, drive you. Consider how prevalent lying is in our day. Is it getting better or worse? Is sexual promiscuity getting worse in our society? 
with instructional materials permeating even classes of little children in many schools? Is the amount of idolatry on the rise as secular powers strive to drive God out of every venue, even the church? Demons will always drive those under their control to serve them until these people can't serve them anymore. That means they are deceased. That's how it works. That is the image of the demons entering the pigs and driving the pigs to their destruction. Yet look at the contrast regarding the one who is now cleansed by the power of Christ. He is in his right mind and he is at peace. He is no longer driven. He is at peace, resting in what Christ Jesus has done for him. The contrast is just amazing. It is awesome. Before this individual was driven into the tombs, he used to cut himself. He was restless. He was never at peace. He was always confused. He was always being driven by this demonic horde. And now because of what Christ Jesus has done for him, cleansing him of all this evil, of all this unrighteousness, he's in his right mind. He's thinking clearly. Nobody's speaking for him. These voices are gone in his head. And he is at peace. Only for the sake of what Christ Jesus has done for him. When you look at Revelation 9, 13 through 21, you're looking at something very similar, but on a much grander scale. In verse 13, the voice coming from the horns of the golden altar represents the prayers of God's people, especially the martyrs, the the saints of Christ that have an influence in the commands of God sends forth and the actions that accompany God's commands upon the earth. Uh, This command is to release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. The Euphrates River is the river that connotes, uh, that divides east from west in the world. It is not only the biblical perspective, but also when you think about east and west being spoken of in common vernacular. That's the dividing line. Notice in verse 15 that these four angels had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year. It's not just the year. It's not just the month. It's not even just the day. It's the very hour they have been kept ready for this. In other words, they have been restrained by God until this very moment. And now they are being released to do what they so desire to do. Uh, This tells you and me that God is sovereign and in control no matter how crazy and violent our world becomes. God is still in control. We say that, and that's not a cliche. That's a reality. Verses 17 through 19 describes the horses and their riders. Uh, Given the fire, smoke, and sulfur, I can understand why some commentators believe that these are more like tanks or howitzers or something like that. That's kind of a description of gunpowder when you think about sulfur and so forth. Those are ingredients in making gunpowder and the fire that comes forth. I can, I can see it, but uh, I don't know if that's truly what, it, what it's all about. Uh, if they literally wipe out a third of mankind, 
Currently, 33% of today's population, which is just under 8 billion people, would be 2,640,000,000 people who would be wiped off the face of the earth. Since this is a proclamation to the church age, we have to take into consideration the last 2,000 years, and most evidence states that throughout all the wars that have been fought uh, with Rome and its surrounding partners, Greece and all that stuff, uh, the last, or I should say Rome on, the last 2,000 years would be about 1 billion people who have died in those wars. So even if there was around 1.8 to 2 billion people left, that's still a lot of people who could perish during these conflicts. We have seen that these horsemen are spiritual forces set loose in the world at God's command. Their judgment is not only of torment, but of death in the form of warfare and conquest. The fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths are the the fumes of hell, and they have the power to slay and wound. With all of this conflict that's taking place, all these plagues being unleashed upon the earth, you would think the people would look up and say, oh my goodness, we need to repent and ask God to bring a, a stop to all this. You would think that that would be the response, right? But again, what's the parallel for this in the Old Testament? What is John drawing from? He's drawing from the Exodus, where Pharaoh and his people hardened their hearts and would not repent. So in verses 20 through 21, you see that these plagues being unleashed are to bring people to repentance, and yet they would not repent. It says that they cannot see, they continue to worship idols that cannot see or hear or walk in verse 21, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. They were still driven by evil. They still were driven by evil and would not repent and turn to the Lord who could redeem them and restore them to himself. So what are we to do then? Stand your ground. Let nothing move you. Be clothed in the armor of God, which is the power of Christ Jesus unto salvation. Seek his counsel daily. Draw from it so that you may not be deceived by the ways of this world. Christians should have no fear of whatever comes, even death. The reason we should have no fear is because our life is secure in Christ Jesus. Even if they would condemn you to die, whatever man can do to you, dream up. And I know it can be horrible. Torture can be horrible. There are terrible things out there. You are Christ's possession. And in his power, he will preserve you even until your final breath. One thing I'm just amazed at when I read the martyrs is the strength that they exuded at their last moments of life on this, on this earth. That strength was there because they were kept by the power of Christ. Some of them forgave those who were putting them to death, like Stephen, Ignatius, several others. They, they prayed for those who were putting them to death. That is the power of Christ in them. That is the power of Christ in you and I. So when the hounds of hell come, 
when those horsemen, when that cavalry comes, remember that you don't stand against them on your own. The way you stand against them and, and, and keep your ground is through the power of Christ Jesus. Not only through his saving power, but also through his wisdom, through his counsel to bear you up and lay hold of you and keep you firm no matter what comes. Amen.